was pegging on every sniffle and pain. The appliance red lighting nearly everyone it tested as overdosed, scorched, past the point of help. So far, the crushing was a personal observation, as with most of the symptoms we'd heard about. And as such, it might as well be dismissed. This bag of gear, as heavy as a small child, would go into the car last. Claire and I weren't the only parents to ditch our houses and, in some cases, other items of value. The command went out in early December, issued in a final radio report before the stations went mute and everyone was leaving. But there was altogether no eye contact from the other men and women likewise packing their cars. The conferring, the hand-wringing, the coolly delivered expertise some of us had to endure from the defensive, uninformed types. That had come and gone, leaving only stupefaction in its place. A disbelief walled off by illness. The know-it-alls are always the last to know. Everyone's a diagnostician, and everyone's wrong. In cities, in towns, in the rural deposits... Along the ledge that dropped off into outer Rochester, and in the middle field beyond the swale that some still called the monastery, quarantines of children clustered up, overtaking neighborhoods, fields, forests, any venue that could be roughly bound by fencing. Loudspeakers lashed to trees, broadcasting the vocal repellent. Fairy tales blasting into the woods, convulsing any adult who came near. Loved ones telephoned each other to exchange dead air, a language of sighs, because to do any more, to build any speech into that heavy breathing, would bring them to their knees. Which is where some of us belonged. Today, our leaving was blessed by a sheer wall of privacy. The body language on our street could have been studied for its gesture-perfect evasions. Just weeks before, Rabbi Burke, speaking by cable to our Jewish hut, called it defended semaphore, the gestures of a body craving disappearance. How many ways can you say, stay the fuck away from me, without speaking? It was a well-crafted public solitude. We were all artfully alone out there, a condition we had better get used to. After we were sure Esther was gone, I helped Claire downstairs and tried to get her to eat. I pushed some eggs at her, even though I knew that soon I'd be scraping those eggs into the trash. I gave her the sippy cup of juice and forced her hand around a piece of bread. She didn't fight my attentions. I pulled her over to the sink and cleaned off what I could. A yolk stain at the corner of her mouth resisted my rough scrubbing, until I realized it was no stain— but jaundice blooming under her skin. Later I could examine her with the lamp, but now it was time to get her out to the car. Claire's sole task, given her condition, was to sit in the passenger seat and keep watch. Any sign of Esther walking up the street, a girl with an overstuffed book bag, or so it would seem, and we'd be gone. It's not that Esther would be allowed near us, the foam-clad officials, barricaded from what the children sprayed, had taken care of that. 
it was that we chose not to see our daughter captured as we drove away. We wished to avoid such a sight becoming our last image of Esther. Trapped in a net, twitching from a jolt they fired at her. If I policed Claire on this task, holding her to my small request, I would be viewed as endorsing and even relishing what we were doing. I'd like to call that a small price to pay, but it wasn't. It was a steep, nasty price. Blame no longer hovered over this whole enterprise. It had landed badly, breaking into pieces inside me, and I was making it welcome. Even before the quarantine was announced, we knew we had to leave. We talked it through as much as Claire could endure, and she had agreed, or at least she had assented silently before wandering back to her soundproof room, that our exit would be undertaken without the complication of Esther's presence. We would not so much as let ourselves...